0: Welcome to Cliffs and Fences, the intersection of public health, policy, and healthcare. My name is Jared Ormsby and join me as I sit down with medical professionals across the globe to discuss topics ranging from your personal health to reinventing how healthcare is delivered. Each episode is designed with the goal to make understanding health an easy to digest process. If you like what you hear, consider subscribing to our channel and sharing it with those you know. If you have questions or want us to cover a specific topic, feel free to email the show at podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Uh, joining me now is Dr. Monica Gandhi. Dr. Gandhi's impressive resume includes professor of medicine and associate Uh, Associate Division Chief of HIV, Infectious Disease, and Global Medicine at UCSF. In addition, Dr. Gandhi serves as the Director of the UCSF Center for AIDS Research and the Medical Director of the Historical HIV Clinic, Ward 86. She attended medical school at Harvard and completed her residency and fellowship at UCSF. Dr. Gandhi also has a master's in public health from UC Berkeley. Uh, Dr. Gandhi has over 250 publications and numerous awards, uh, most recently for her service dedicated to the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Gandhi, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. So uh, we're gonna talk about your New York Times piece that just came out today, uh, this afternoon, I believe. Uh, but I wanted to first start off with uh, the, the one thing that's covering the headlines right now, and that's Omicron. Omicron. I always want to say Omnicron. There's no N in it. I mean, there's, there's only <laughs> right. one. Um, what do we know? And maybe mo- most importantly, what don't we know? Uh, I know the, the big media outlets like to claim that we know so much about it. Do we actually, what do we know? What do we don't know?
1: So, you know, it's interesting because I think we know a lot more two and a half weeks in, especially since I know there's many articles right now saying, oh, what we don't know about Omicron, but in a way, um, it actually didn't just a rise on Thanksgiving day, right? Like it was probably circulating, it looks like in California before that. Um, it may have been in the Netherlands before that. Like anytime something's identified, it's been here. And we still haven't seen the increase in severity of disease. So I think it's a good way to just break it down. Um, is it more transmissible? That's the question, you have a variant. Is it more virulent and uh, than, than the ancestral strain? And is it actually, um, evading the vaccines, so in terms of transmissibility, I think two and a half weeks in, it is very likely it's more transmissible than Delta. I think it's overtaking the genomes in South Africa where it was first um, discussed, and it really that that's a sign that something's more transmissible. But in terms of it being more virulent, it's definitely not more virulent. We can say that two and a half weeks in, and the question is, is it less virulent than the ancestral strain? And there's two lines of um, And and then Delta, there's two lines of evidence that's pointing to that. One is that among the vaccinated who are mostly travelers or people who are um, being declared from the CDC and the EU, everyone has mild symptoms. In fact, even if they have a booster, they have mild symptoms. Mm. So to be honest, usually uh, vaccines protect us against severe disease, but they may not overwhelm with the antibodies this particular mutated strain. So you may get still mild respiratory symptoms, but it's mild. Unvaccinated, Even the unvaccinated in South Africa are not being hospitalized like they did with Delta. They are not. They, In fact, a very transmissible variant in everyone's nose because it's running around, it can find people's nasal passages, and they're swabbing people, and people are being hospitalized for other things, and COVID's in their nose. And they're going so, and they're there for some other reason. Um, And so that actually went so far as for a professor at University of Johannesburg today to say he thinks this is the variant that will end the pandemic, because this is what happened with influenza. Either enough people got immunity or we had a milder strain. No one will ever figure out what happened in 1918. But something happened and it ended the pandemic and Omicron is looking like that so far. And then the third, does it evade the vaccines? It depends on what you want from the vaccines. It likely will not evade every ability to get mild infection in your nose. But what I want from the vaccines as a infectious disease doctor is to prevent severe disease. And it definitely is doing that.
0: And so with that in mind, uh, there seems to be two two trains of thought is that, uh, like you said, uh, we, we can worry about you know, cases, or we can just worry about the severity. What do you, what do you make of, It seems like uh, the, the manufacturers of the vaccine are, are really worried about, well, we, I don't want to go into their motives too deeply, but, um, you know, they, <laughs> they're worried about cases. You know, we hear, I think uh, Scott Got- Gottlieb, is that, is that how you pronounce it? I think, yes, um, yes. Saying, you know, it looks like a, a third or fourth dose is going to be uh, required for it. How, how true is that?
1: Well, to be fair, and he's he's actually a great public health officer, but he uh, person but he is on the board of Pfizer so I want to be fair about that like I actually not think that anyone should be giving advice during this pandemic, at least advice that's followed by the public. Um, who has any money that they're getting from right. vaccine companies, yeah. testing companies, masking companies, anything. You can't take any money. So I will object to people who take money and then decide what we do in this country. Now, um, uh, um, but not only he is saying that, but um, but other public health officials are saying that. And the thing about that is that, yes, I think if we kept on, like, for example, let's get, let's do measles. If you mm-hmm. kept boosting someone, you may never even get measles in your nose and have a mild, uh, infection. Um, but we don't know if people are getting mild measles infections because we never test people's noses, um, uh, and swab them. Uh, even if someone's had a measles outbreak, like for example, there, there's been, um, measles outbreaks in Marin with parents, not vaccinating kids or some populate religious populations that, um, that don't vaccinate and you'll see a measles outbreak but we don't actually swab the person in the store who is next to someone you know sitting there but they could have measles in their nose and they may even not feel well but the reason that we um you know really are worried about measles is if you don't have any immunity you can really get very sick and measles was a major cause of death um in young children prior to 1963 which was the first measles vaccine so it depends on what we're trying to do with the vaccine. I think it's possible that if we boosted everyone every eight weeks, they never even see Omicron in their nose. Um, but that's not good public policy. It's, it's it um, it's really expensive, and um, it's it, it, it uh, You know, I have no idea what that, what effect that would have on people's immune systems. But it's very important to just stay focused. Why did we get scared about uh, COVID? One reason, one reason alone. December 31st, 2019, we heard these cases that was declared to the WHO from Wuhan, China, people getting very sick, pneumonias in the hospital, dying, even healthcare workers, actually the healthcare worker that was the whistleblower was an ophthalmologist, he died of COVID. So that is what scares us and is absolutely essential to prevent with COVID. It is our job as public health to prevent severe disease. And it really does seem that the two-dose vaccines do that, except in people who have problems with their immune system, that would be immunocompromised, older people. I would also boost someone who is around an immunocompromised person just to be careful. And people with multiple medical conditions, but someone immunocompetent and young, um, they actually are very, these are really protecting against severe disease, disease two dose. And someone young like you and who's male, I actually would be worried about things like side effects of vaccines sure. to keep on getting vaccines. And so I'm truly, I think to deny that you know myocarditis happens with mRNA vaccines is really causing distrust too.
0: And and that brings up actually what I wanted to lead into. So that's perfect is uh, this, uh, if I correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the CDC uh, just recently came out and uh, they're now including uh, 16 and 17 year olds, because at first it was uh, just above 18, six months out, uh, get boosted. Uh, and they've really doubled down on that here in California where you and I are. Um, and the CDC now is including 16 to 17 uh, in that booster recommendation. Uh, your thoughts on that?
1: I was actually really worried when they said that because what happened is the CDC director said it, but there was no cons- consultation with the CDC ACIP, which is a committee of looking at immunization practices, always been our committee to advise us about what we should do with vaccines in this country. And that committee has some pediatricians on it who have actually expressed concern in the past that we don't you know, we don't vaccinate people for mild infection, they've said it out loud, if you listen to their meetings, we vaccinate for severe disease, Mm -hmm. and pediatricians would be more concerned, especially adolescent pediatricians about side effects of vaccines, like 16 and 17 year olds. So for kind of an adult person, uh, uh, um, adult-centric infectious disease doctor to decide with that, which is Rochelle Walensky, but the, the... The CDC ACIP or the FDA advisory committee not to weigh in because they also didn't weigh in is very concerning. And many people on the FDA advisory committee, you know, wrote articles. Dr. Pauloff wrote an article just yesterday saying that was not what we would have approved if the advisory committee had been. Um, consulted because of there's a risk-benefit analysis for young people, especially males, which is an interesting thing. It happened with the smallpox vaccine too, more uh, myocarditis. I still can't quite figure it out in males. And so 16 or 17-year-old male would be very worried about boosting.
0: On sort of the same, it, it's not necessarily on the same hand as as boosters, but today I was watching uh a a YouTube video that was shared by Alameda County, where I'm a resident, Uh, their public health department shared this video, and it had uh, basically a panel of epidemiologists, Uh, I think there was a critical care uh, pediatrician, and I want to say, maybe an infectious disease physician, Uh, and all of them said that absolutely, uh, kids should be vaccinated. And that didn't necessarily, I don't want to say it didn't sit well with me, because I have no, I have no credibility in the vaccine or anything uh, having to do with vaccines. Uh, but that seemed odd that uh, they were all um, 100%, no questions asked. Kids should receive vaccines um, uh, that starting from age five. Uh, your thoughts on that?
1: You know, we don't have really nuanced conversations in this country. So I did write a piece for Time that said children should be vaccinated and I gave the reasons why. And it was that even though children are very low risk for disease um, uh, and, and any sort of severe disease, um, even, even, even if you could prevent any deaths in children um, with something that's safe and effective, do it. Um, the second reason we gave, and I wrote it with a pediatrician, was that it can help block transmission to older people. And that's, that's helpful because we work in groups. And then the third is that we just have restricted children so much with schools that maybe it would help them like go back to school normally. But actually, the last paragraph, if anyone reads the Time article, was very clear. And it said, um, number one, we have to decide uh, if um, we vaccinate children with natural infection, who's been naturally before because a lot of kids have um, because it's a very highly transmissible respiratory virus and they usually had very mild illness and um, and the the debate on natural immunity seems to be fading meaning like Europe doesn't vaccinate people or doesn't expect anyone to be vaccinated if they've had infection for 365 days, for example, in Switzerland, and they said in a year we'll evaluate if your immunity is still holding up, then there's no reason for a vaccine. So it's it's kind of Europe talks about natural immunity and so does many other countries, but we don't do that. So that was one caveat. The second caveat is, um, is uh, that uh, if someone is, uh, sp- the spacing of the vaccine, and what we said was that Every other country who's giving children or advising it for children, because only one country yet is advising for five to eleven year olds um, strongly, which is Canada, but they are saying only at eight weeks between doses, and they published a paper yesterday um, that the national uh, the NACI used, which is their ACIP equivalent, why it's eight weeks to minimize the risk of myocarditis, because the risk of myocarditis was five times higher if you gave the dose within three weeks, which is how we're giving Pfizer. Of five to eleven vaccines here, and then the third thing we said is wait for parents to feel comfortable. Meaning, um, you know, like the FDA when they when they the FDA advisory committee when they talked about the five to eleven year old vaccine, it's a very nuanced conversation. They said parents need to feel comfortable. They need safety data, um, and then Dr. Peter Mark said, "Hey, we're not going to." You know, approve this vaccine until we have an army of safety people looking at it from the FDA. He used that phrase, and so some parents need more time. So we can't mandate like the LA Unified School District is is vaccinating five to eleven year olds before they go to school, um, because we need to give parents that time.
0: Yeah, I was listening. Uh, I think I was reading or listening, one of the two. Um, but something like thirty is it thirty four thousand students? Uh, maybe my number is way off, but that wouldn't meet that that. Uh, Los Angeles uh, uh, Unified School District uh, deadline, and so that's that's definitely concerning to me. So um, they'd be kicked out of
1: school, you know, if they maintain that that deadline. And we and we were fifty out of fifty of opening schools. You you and I know the city in California, but we were the least um, most restrictive, and we didn't open schools until every other state had. I mean, fifty out of fifty. So so we should think about the impact on learning and what we've done uh, in the state with over restrictions with kids.
0: Right, and and we're seeing. I mean, we're already sort of seeing the harms of it. Uh, you probably a lot yes. more than someone like me. What what uh, what concerns you of the you know maybe the repercussions that we haven't seen yet? Do you see anything happening in the next five or ten years that are going to come up from uh, the uh, shutdowns of schools for so long?
1: You know, it's interesting because I was looking back at the 1918 pandemic when I was writing a grant um, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. I was writing a grant for the NIH about COVID. And so I had to do, you know, research and I looked back and the impact on kids, even a four month school closures, because, um, actually New York city and Chicago did not, um, did not close schools because they said we're progressive cities. And so we uh, need 750,000 of our kids in New York city were in low income housing. And there's no way we're going to close schools. Even if influenza affected children more, we're just going to try to keep them safe because we need kids in school. Kids need school. And so New York city didn't close their schools, but um, Berkeley did actually, and and places in the West did, but they only did it for four months because they saw how disastrous it was and they opened them up. And so even from that, short school closure, let alone the 18 months that we did here in California, um, there were impacts, long lasting impacts on kids, children who grew up, actually there's data that it was learning loss. It was loss of an ability to get occupation, to go later to college, to get occupations that would suit you know, them. And, and, and there were a lot of people who fell into poverty. And so that's how important education is, right? And, and we had that ability to look back in 1918 and see what it did. So I am worried about all the kids who are kept out of school, especially in Maryland, Oregon, California, Virginia. I mean, there were really some like uh, those four states were at the bottom. Um, other states did open up.
0: This this makes me wonder now that we're, uh, I want to say, 23 months. I mean, we can call it two years into sort of the pandemic. Yeah. It seems as though now, now that the vaccines are out, and this kind of leads into your New York Times piece, which is, of course, uh, you know, the the uh, why why we're why we're meeting today. Um, but it seems as though that the highest uh, vaccinated counties and states, mo- uh, some of them that you just listed, are still the ones that are most restrictive. Uh, do you think that's going to have any harm on the public, the the public's trust in public health? Your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, you know, I have already seen um, massive distrust in public health. Um, mm-hmm. Meaning that even I watched, you know, um, the CDC directors and 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 medical advisors to to presidents at the beginning of the Biden administration get a lot of respect, and then already it's July, and there's a lot of people turning against public health because. Um, wait, what month are we in? <laughs> Is it? It's, sorry, I didn't mean July. We're in December, yeah, but. Um, I... Year since President Biden took office, so that's what I should realize that like we have to watch what's gone over the first year of the Biden administration because if we look back at the Trump administration, there was a lot of confounding factors what was going on with public health, but what's been going on the first year of the Biden administration, and I'm seeing a lot of people you know sort of turn against public health, and part of it is because there hasn't been a dialogue about the collateral damage of of restrictions and focusing on COVID. And yesterday, it was so funny, uh, David Leonard wrote an article in the New York Times, because he always writes the morning newsletter, letter, called COVID malaise. And he pointed it out. He said that, you know, red states are back to normal, but states like ours in California um, seem to have no ability, and he was talking about it, uh, the state in which the New York Times is listed as well, New York, no ability to also think about the how our interventions also were harmful in terms of increasing cancer deaths, in terms of increasing cardiovascular deaths in terms of closing down medical care. Uh, the governor of New York two weeks ago, said, let's stop medical care for uh, elective surgeries because of Omicron. Um, and those surgeries, I'll just tell you as a doctor, are not usually elective they're tumor removal. Right. Right. So I mean, these, this is, we, um, this far into the pandemic, she said, Omicron stopped surgeries. And so, um, and then he also talked a lot about children and he talked about in the article about school children, how it's been for them for two years. And he dared bring up the M word, the mask word, um, <laughs> that that it, it's hard for kids not to see each other's faces and that they're still masking outside of New York and California and that which doesn't have any biological basis and that... Um, and that it's hard that they that that and then finally he didn't mention it in his report, but just five days ago the uh, Surgeon General released his second report of his tenureship under Biden, and it was that um, the mental health crisis in our youth in 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 the U.S. and it wasn't just children; it was also young adults. Um, and uh, and and he pointed out that the report pointed out, you know, of course, the COVID restrictions and how hard it's been on kids because. They were asked to stay away from people and they were asked to have the schools closed to protect older people. And so all of that put together, we should be allowed at this point, almost two years in, like you said, to discuss the holistic aspects of interventions that we were doing for COVID and what it's done in terms of our other health outcomes. You and I live in a state where overdose deaths, I mean, San Francisco has, has, um, Had seen massive increases in overdose deaths during during the COVID pandemic. We have now, I think, four times the number of deaths of overdose than COVID in our city. And so it is, it is, we, why not? Why can't we discuss other aspects of public health? And I'm not, though I'm an infectious disease doctor, I think because I studied HIV, we always thought about HIV not in a vacuum. We thought about like what to do. In the setting of other aspects of public health um, and people's needs and human needs, and you know, in, in the case of HIV, sexual needs, or in um, also um, there the what we do with harm reduction with uh, people who use drugs. So I don't know why we're not. It's not okay to talk about collateral damage.
0: And I, I actually that 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 word that you said was something I really wanted to ask you. And as we transition into the piece, uh, is harm is harm reduction? And as an outsider, um, I mean. Really, the only credibility I have is I did my undergraduate in public health. So I know a thing or two, uh, but probably my cap cap is two things that I know. Um, (laughs) But it seems like as an outsider, I see that there's we've split ourselves sort of in the harm reduction category or the zero tolerance. uh, You know, uh, we can't we can't even sacrifice a single case. Uh, And after listening to you, reading your uh, your pieces, Uh, it seems as though you you fit in that harm reduction uh, category. Uh, My first question, is that true? Are you in that harm reduction category? And two, what are the what are the consequences of making this uh, divide? Um, I don't want to, you know, point at a single administration or a single health officer that has made this divide. But uh, what are the what are the consequences of this divide?
1: You know, I am a harm reductionist and and, um, that's because of my long experience with HIV. So I I came, you know, here in 1996 just to do HIV, even though that was just for my internal medicine residency, because I thought this was a place, unlike the place I grew up, which was um, Utah, but it was just a tolerant place of a pathogen, you know, which was HIV. Um, It was tolerant and worked within people's needs and um, there was a big focus on LGBTQ culture in in uh, San Francisco, and all of that really impressed me because it wasn't what I grew up with. And I wanted to be in a place where HIV was talked about absolutely, tried to reduce infections, but did it within the context of people's lives and talked about you know people's needs. And so I have just been like that uh, since because that was my training since the beginning. And um, and so then when COVID hit, I did become a harm reductionist reductionist in it. And that means that you still try to reduce COVID, but that you still take people's needs into account. So just like a year ago today, I wrote an article for Mission Local. It was actually my first COVID op-ed and now my last this is my 50th in the new york times today but it was said that you know let's have nuance and people do want to see each other over the holidays who love each other and let's um they can test and they can mask and distance and ventilate but they're but we don't have to just keep people away from each other and that got a lot of controversy actually because everyone else was saying whatever you do stay away from each other and i didn't think that made sense with people's needs and so yes i've been consistently a harm reductionist in it and yes i've been attacked by COVID zero people and the COVID zero mentality is that no matter what you just prevent every case of COVID and that's all that matters. And the problem is you can't, it's just a highly transmissible respiratory variant and all of our attempts to do that, some of them have been quite harmful actually. And for example, your very own health department and mine are now rallying around something called an Omicron response. But I keep on thinking, well, not why not rally around all these terrible public health problems we've seen in our cities over the last two years? Let's talk about those too. And I keep on getting these notices from the San Francisco Health Department that says stay safe and stay away from people two years into it. But I wanted them to say, hey, the virologic suppression rate decreased in those who are homeless living with HIV to 20% this year. I consider that a total emergency. That means mm-hmm. only 20% of people living with HIV or homeless in our city of San Francisco have a virologic are virologically suppressed, meaning they have the goal of therapy. This is going to be a big HIV problem. And um I haven't seen any notices about that emergency.
0: Yeah, I I too when I you know I I try to go to the gym every day and it's funny that uh, the gym's at full capacity now, uh, but they still have the Alameda County signs up saying, you know, make sure you keep your distance, and uh, that's not happening anymore. <laughs> it just doesn't seem yeah. like it is. Um, but moving into your, and that's uh, okay.
1: We have so many vaccinations; it's really
0: okay, right? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, sorry.
1: Yeah, no. I mean, I was gonna say that if we don't change, also, with our neat with the updated tools, right, which are like. Specifically, the main ones are vaccinations and therapeutics. I mean, masks were a tool prior to vaccinations that I wrote a lot about and I think were really important. But if we don't change and update, we look um myopic in our in our public health recommendations that it's all about COVID and we don't talk about like the need to exercise like what you just expressed that you wouldn't go to the gym every day that's great oh my gosh that's amazing so like right everyone should be doing this so so we we are we are losing you know sight of other public health needs
0: right and I I definitely feel that you know you 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 can talk if you if you are a sort of zero tolerant um covid I don't know a covid person yeah. you, you you can you can have the platforms you won't uh, sort of be ostracized but like you said once you bring up harm reduction and yes, uh, trying to minimize as much impact as we can, but you know, allowing people to live their lives, it's like, oh, hey, 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 we can't be talking about that. You know, you're gonna, you're gonna kill grandma if you're talking like that. And uh, yeah,
1: it's it, been really hard for children and for young people like you. It, that the killing, gra- you know, what happened in this country? I mean, it really leads into the peace. But what happened is Trump minimized COVID, and so because of that, or um, the left, who is most public health professionals and infectious disease doctors maximize COVID, and that meant that they didn't use risk stratification, they didn't use epidemiology, they didn't use data, they didn't put out um, statement, you know, they didn't put out enough papers about how you as a young person, I'm looking at you, are much, much less at risk than your your um, than your uh, than 50-year-old or six-year-old parents, your 85-year-old grandparents, mm-hmm. they it didn't stress that enough, and so that thus we had to modulate our restrictions around data and around epidemiology and risk stratification. Because Trump did that, we went the other way. And actually, what I call COVID maximizing um, did really severe damage to children and to young people. And it wasn't based on epidemiologic fact. It just wasn't. It wasn't based on data and it was political. So we were both political, both sides were political. And um, the public health professionals happen to be left. They happen to mostly be, um, you know, against Trump, and I'm against Trump too. Um, but but I I certainly liked it when he said open schools, and I didn't say, you know, oh that means that if he said it, that means everything is wrong and we better keep schools closed. Like, you know, like broken clocks are twice, right? Twice a day. Like he was totally right. And so, and look at the side effects of not opening schools. So in blue states, not red states, they open schools. So this is all political and, and we will have a reckoning of this. I think that will be that young people are going to be pretty angry at us, um, at the public health system when they grow up.
0: Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And um, this kind of goes into those metrics that we were talking about it seems um and uh, you know we're gonna we're gonna have you uh, shed some light on this um it, it's just looking at where we're at you know in the bay area with covid and the vaccination rates it's hard to believe that some of the restrictions especially with masks uh, aren't uh, political anymore. Um, but you wrote your, like you said, this is your 50th piece at, uh, op-ed in the New York Times. And that's uh, that's awesome. So congratulations, uh, 50 pieces. That's Thank pretty you. cool. Um, Long time in coming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. And this one's titled, uh, It's Time to Change the COVID Metrics We Use to Guide Policy. Um, what's uh, your, your main argument in this is basically, we need to switch to a hospitalization focused, uh, you know, following the hospitalizations more closely than we are cases than we are transmission um what was the motivation you probably already covered this in a lot of your your previous responses but what's the motivation behind this uh, this piece
1: Yeah, you know, the motivation was that um, cases at the beginning of COVID essentially didn't track one-to-one because a young person was not likely to be hospitalized an older person was. But there was a tracking where they followed parallel curves, that cases went up and hospitalizations went up and the hospitalizations were among vulnerable people to COVID-19 virus. And so then what public health did is they said, okay, we're going to try to crush that curve, do whatever we can, just keep people away from each other. And that included masking and distancing and ventilation and doing what we could to reduce those cases because the hospitalizations of older people and people with medical conditions would track with cases. After the vaccination, that, that those metrics became decoupled, especially during Delta, actually, Um, that in our uh, area of the Bay Area, we had high rates of vaccination when Delta hit. We saw a lot of cases. There was a San Francisco Chronicle report on We saw a lot of cases, but hospitalization stayed really low. And and yet um, we responded to Delta with putting back masks, and so did the CDC, um, because they had released them for vaccinated people, but they thought, okay, that can reduce transmission. And then, interestingly, in Orange County and LA, right next to each other, Orange County put back masks LA didn't put back no opposite LA put back masks County didn't and there was zero difference in transmission in the two um, regions it was purely hospitalizations were based on their vaccination rates which were the same and so it just proved that you know vaccination is a more powerful tool to um, prevent COVID-19 hospitalizations than masks so then the reason we wrote this piece on hospitalization should be our metric now is that is that even here in the Bay Area, you see the uh, Marin County health officer named Matt Willis took off masks, indoor masks for the public four weeks ago and cases have gone up maybe because of Omicron and he said, well, I'm not putting them back because hospitalizations are still low. And they were zero the day he took off masks, zero hospitalizations in Marin. And now there are five hospitalizations throughout a large area. Um, with COVID 19. So he he said, I can't put back masks. It would be, doesn't make sense. Like we, my purpose of a health officer, who I am, is to prevent disease. And so he didn't put back masks. And of course, San Francisco put them back and has kept them back. Alameda has, Santa Clara, I think San Jose even said, wear them in your um, household. But there was just, we're just all over the place with masks. And so it's just really clean to say, okay. Let's form our restrictions on what public health was supposed to do the entire time, which is to prevent people from getting sick. Let's form our restrictions there. So if you do everything on hospitalizations now, and they have to be COVID hospitalizations because you can swab the nose. We swab everyone's nose for COVID if they got hospitalized, even a child with a broken leg, and they could have it in their um, nose, but it doesn't mean they're hospitalized for COVID. So we have to cleanly parse out COVID hospitalizations. And then base policy on that because now we have the vaccination and it seems really even restrictions like mass mandates. And it seems really clear to me to do that because then that would um, make it so that schools don't close down. Detroit closed down their schools every Friday this winter. They said to close, slow the spread. Middlebury closed a couple of days ago because there were cases, Um, but there were no more hospitalizations in the area. I mean, it will actually be of great benefit to young people. And to schools if we go if we change the way we think about what we need to stop which is severe disease with covid
0: i wanted to uh get your get your opinion because i i spoke with dr moss who's the health officer over alameda county um and i don't i don't want to quote him because i don't have his words right in front right here in front of me but uh when i when i had asked that question You know why keep the masks? Uh, If if we're so we're so vaccinated as a county, I want to say actually I think I even have it right here pulled up, Um, fully vaccinated, including and this is what he told me, including people that aren't even eligible. So our our fully vaccinated number includes, you know, kids under five, where we're seventy seven percent fully vaccinated, and Mm -hmm. I almost got the impression that he he felt and well I'll I'll say Alameda County. public health felt as though, well, we, we've we we have the success that we do because of the masks, whereas Marin will say, you know, it's it's not really a, a masks aren't really a thing anymore. Um, so is that true? I mean, I, I mean, is, is the Bay Area so successful because we are uh, masking as as uh, uh, yeah. tightly as we do?
1: No, I mean that is not the reason for our success. Even giving that example that I just gave you with Orange County and LA right next to each other, one masks, one doesn't. It really was. I mean, that's that's actually as close of a controlled experiment you can get because they're approximate right next to each other. And same with Marin and San Francisco, very close to each other. And we cross the bridge all the time. So it's not about mass after vaccination. Um, So it really is about vaccination rates that is keeping people doing so well, the the regions doing so well. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I do know all these public health officers, just to be clear, like I Grew up in California as a as a as a uh, medical person, so so I do know every single person that says this, um, including Matt Willis and then Nicholas Moss and then Susan Phillip over here, and everyone's just saying different things, and um, that also detre- decreases trust in public health. And so I think we have to look to Marin just because they, it's just super reasonable the way he said it um, to the Chronicle, and also. Um, to, the, uh, to, the, to the Marin Daily, he just said, well, my purpose as a public health officer, decrease disease, we're 89% vaccinated, and that is my job. And so I think that's right. And um, I think hopefully the same, all these public health officers will get on the same page because you just cross the bridge and you don't have to wear a mask. It's really weird.
0: <laughs> well, it's, and it's even strange to me, again, as sort of that outsider perspective, um, for a little bit. Uh, I was working at a restaurant just part-time to save up some money. Uh, and you know, the, you know, the situation in restaurants, um, yeah. you, you gotta, uh, enter the building order with your mask on, but you can sit as long as you want, uh, with your mask off. Uh, there's really no distance there. I mean, they're not doing any, uh, they used to do like every other table, but now they're not doing that anymore. Uh, and so I, I wonder like, well, is this truly the the success? And I think you answered that question. Um, and I also
1: think that kind of theater, and we call pandemic theater, right, but that kind of bizarre non-common sense thing, you know, where like closing playgrounds over the winter when poor children would be more likely to need the playground than a rich rich family, um, these kind of non-common sense things where you, where you wear your mask to your table and you take it off. It's not like you need a you need a degree in infectious disease to like see that that just doesn't make sense. There's nothing about that that's common sense, and that's what I think driving people crazy now at this phase in the pandemic including parents, is they're like, none of this makes common sense. Like, why would a five-year-old be eating outside in the rain in Oregon? Um, Because they are. Um, And it's going to rain next week here in the Bay Area. And I'm very worried, like, our public health officials are going to make little kids be eating in the rain. Like, that's not even common sense. There's some aspect about that that's just ridiculous. So I'm really hoping that we just, we got to get back to common sense with our mitigations.
0: Well, and you also also talked about hospitalizations uh, being an important um, it's not just switching over to hospitalizations as a metric, but making sure our hospitalizations are clean, and that's actually something I talked to Dr. Moss about as well. Uh, his his opinion, uh, again, not quoting him, uh, was that well, you know, with or for COVID doesn't really inflate it all that much. And now that I think about it, I want to say you you had a either in like an article or research paper on the f- uh, for COVID versus with COVID at UCSF. Um, am I am I correct in that thinking?
1: Yes, so actually it's really interesting. So of course it does inflate it. Um, and that's, that's um, you know, that that is an inaccurate statement, what he said, but because I work in a hospital and I think public health officials sometimes, very often aren't actually working in hospitals. They, um, but so I think it's always good for a public health official to be sitting, you know, around patients. I think it would have actually really changed the response if they'd seen patients. So yes. Yeah, so we swab everyone's nose. Um, who come into the hospital because then we would want like a nurse around them to wear a mask or them to wear a mask like we want to make sure it's not in your nose and so we absolutely have done that since the beginning of the pandemic again unprecedented haven't done that for influenza we don't swab someone with a broken leg to see if they have influenza in their nose um we, we just did this with COVID and so there are people in the hospital who are there for something else entirely but they have COVID in their nose and they can be counted as a COVID hospitalization so this group in California. Did a very nice review of chart of charts because the only way to really know this is to go through charts and say, okay, yeah, no, this kid was in here for a broken leg, not COVID. This was here for COVID and not a broken leg. And um, they did they wrote two papers um, in hospital pediatrics. It was I think almost eight months ago. And yeah, I wrote a commentary on their papers along with Amy Beck, a pediatrician at UCSF, where we said it looked like children the 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 hospitalizations were 40% inflated, meaning um 40% of kids were actually not in the hospital with COVID, but for other things, which again, you have to do some some, they had to do some very careful work to show that. And that's good because we d- we knew that children weren't so much at risk for severe disease. And it and it allows us to just be accurate about our reporting. So about 40% in kids at least the hospitalizations are inflated. And then adults, I don't know the number, but Alameda County where you're sitting, they actually did an analysis um T- like two months ago where they said 25% of COVID deaths were not COVID. They were misclassified. So They downgraded their deaths by 25% Alameda. So so he knows that because he he's a public health officer there. So it, it does matter, right? Like it does matter to be accurate in your data reporting. The CDC has been criticized for this as well, that you just, um, just say everything is a COVID hospitalization if it's in your nose. That's not accurate. And that will allow us to downgrade the impact on young people who may be there for appendicitis but has it in their nose. And it's so important because we want clear data, risk stratification, epidemiology. That's how we get through a pandemic. We need accurate data. And and it's not right to just repeat things that seem right, you know, just to say, that masks work. Yes, I think they work too, actually, but but it doesn't mean that you restrict the population and keep them wearing masks after vaccination. It doesn't mean that. You, you can't keep on saying the same thing that you said two years ago, like we were just talking about before. So I think it is important. We got to upgrade. <laughs> That's why I wrote this article. It's a it's time to upgrade our COVID metrics. I do think the cases were tremendously important at the beginning. It's two years in. We have vaccination. It's time to change our policy. And I hope that this United States listens to me. I actually have a... I sent this to the CDC to because I have friends there. I've sent this to the NIH. I sent this to um, the White House Task Force, and I sent it to the Surgeon General because I think it's that important that we change our ways um, and the way that we look at COVID, so that we can we can also focus on young people in schools.
0: I want to I want to read a line from your piece um, that I I thought would be uh not only just like for for like the mask argument the you know tracking cases argument but i think like the the broader picture of public health uh it says uh you and your colleagues say nearly all interventions to arrest the spread of covid carry some costs now some people would would argue well it's just a piece of cloth uh around your face uh you only have to wear it when you're you know going to the store or going to school uh you know at church and things like that um get over it essentially uh, your response to something like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, exactly like why we did interventions um, was that we thought that it was important to um, to stop the spread of COVID. And so every intervention was careful, should have been carefully weighed. And that's actually why schools were closed at the beginning, which I approved of because we didn't know what was going on, like every we needed a lockdown. Um, until we just figured out some properties of the virus. Like, is it spread by fomite surfaces? Is it really mitigated by ventilation, masks? Like we needed some time to figure that all out. So lockdowns at the very beginning in March 2020 made sense. Then after that, especially in a society, you weigh every intervention once you know the properties of the virus against the risks of that intervention. And this far in, if we use cases only to, for our restrictions, then We're not weighing the needs of children and of young people to be in college and to stay in college and to see each other's faces, too, and to be around each other and to socialize normally. We're not weighing the risks of what that would mean. We're not weighing learning loss risks. We're not weighing so many other things. So I think it's important to weigh everything in a pandemic.
0: And looking, uh, as I said, I wanted to sort of talk about the the broader picture as well. Where... So after all, we've talked about where are we at in the pandemic? Um, you know, if if you're living in, uh, so uh, I at one point lived in Idaho and uh, Idaho is very different uh, than California, uh, you know, intuitively, that makes sense. Um, COVID is not really a thing anymore, but for people like in, uh, us in the Bay Area, COVID is uh, still in the headlines. Uh, it's still sort of running, running our lives, uh, for lack of better terms. Where are we at in the pandemic? Is it, if you're vaccinated, is it over? Uh, Do we still need to be, do we still need to be worried? Like on a personal level, what would you, what would you tell people listening?
1: So, you know, I would say that, um, that that's another sign when like a place who's equally doing as well in terms of hospitalizations feels that things are over. And then a place that's doing very well in terms of hospitalizations don't feel that it's over and, and, um, Uh, And that's a sign it's political and not um, not based in science. And so I don't think there's any other country in the world that's showing us uh, that except the United States, that you can be places in the United States and feel like COVID is not the main thing to think about and then you can go right next door to another state and, and it's all the public health officials talk about. And that isn't science, that's politics, right? Because um, there's no doubt that we all are able to look on dashboards in, um, in that are pub- that are posted by public health officials, public health departments, and see that there are five people in the hospital with COVID in Marin, for example. And you think it's about 30 in San Francisco, and I don't know where it is across Alameda. So everyone can get the data on hospitalizations from the dashboard. So Um, so I do think that it became political much more in this country, maybe than anywhere else, probably because it started under someone that a lot of people didn't like, uh, neither did I, who was President Trump. And, um, and so then we made it about politics. So it's hard to lose the masks. It's hard to say it isn't just all about COVID. And I would just love the Department of Public Health officials to get up all of these nine counties that we live in in the bay area and talk about you know some of the other mental health effects on kids and and the overdose deaths and 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 make a commitment to us um at here now that that, that there will be attention paid to other public health problems because omicron interestingly um i think it's appropriate like at the beginning to think what is it going to do but I don't think two and a half weeks in, especially when it's been circulating for a long time, that this data is in doubt that it's more mild. In fact, for the University of Johannesburg, which I've worked with, uh, I really trust myself and African colleagues because I'm an ID uh, HIV doctor, so I've worked with them they are like, this is totally different. And you can't deny that. Like, you can't keep on saying, well, they're wrong. They don't know what they mean. Let's wait longer. Like someone wrote me today and said, wait, how much longer do we have to wait? All these reports are very consistent. So it's great. I mean, this could be really good that it's more mild. And it means you, and what the University of Johannesburg professor wrote today is, then you stop worrying about transmission. And all that you stop using restrictions on the public, all you do is worry about getting people vaccinated getting people out of the hospital that's what you worry that's all you're supposed to do in public health
0: and so lastly i want to uh i want to sort of this is kind of switching gears um like i said i did i did my my undergraduate in public health and so i know i one thing i do know one of those two things that i do know is uh is reaching out to the people on the fence uh just like your closing thoughts for people that uh, so, I mean, I think it's surprising that there's still people that are on the fence about. I mean, I, under, I I get it. I get why people are on the fence uh, on like sort of a, a, a national scale. Uh, but I think that the data is clear. Um, do you have any messages towards people that are vaccine hesitant? Uh, you know, hearing about myocarditis, hearing about these side effects um, that we talked about a little bit earlier. Do you have any uh, thoughts for them?
1: Yes. You know, um, I actually uh, I. I- I actually really really do. So um some people in in public health and my fellow doctors have expressed anger that people wouldn't get vaccinated and um I actually don't ha- I think that's very inappropriate for for a public health official to have like anger at people who won't get vaccinated because I genuinely think they're listening to um uh, something that they they never had access to before in any other pandemic, which is social media and and um, and and news channels that where people say it's a dangerous vaccine, which is true, true outright misinformation. It's not true. Um, but they there are people who are genuinely frightened. And I instead would say that, I think it's very simple to how to say it at this point. There are mild side effects of the vaccine, so we have to be careful about our strategy. And that's why, like, young younger women were advised against Johnson & Johnson with clots. Younger men were advised against spacing doses for myocarditis. So mild effects of both. However, we have now had so much data on the vaccines because the clinical trial started in July twenty. 20- 20 and it's uh, coming on a year actually tomorrow's the year long anniversary today's the year long anniversary of the first EUA December 11th the first vaccine we have so much data and they are so safe and they are so effective and they are the key because immunity has always been the key to get anything out of a pandemic whether it's natural which is a terrible hard way to get through a pandemic or um or vaccines and i would just encourage anyone who's on the fence to please get vaccinated and and i can tell you that I've truly, deeply looked at all the side effects, and and, and really, they're safe vaccines.
0: Yeah, and and I know that we've talked a, l- a little bit about some of the criticisms that we have of our own counties, but I will say, uh, I I do applaud uh, our our public health departments on the accessibility of vaccines. So if you're listening to this, uh, just in addition to what Dr. Gandhi has said, they are uh, free. I mean that you don't have to pay anything and, and they're accessible. They've, they've really worked hard to make them accessible uh, to the public and I think that's fantastic. Um, so yes. for, for all the listeners, please uh, uh, go read Dr. Gandhi's piece in the New York Times. I think it does give some nuance uh, that we haven't had uh, uh, about harm reduction and I just think it's a really good read overall. And of course, we hope that it gets to uh, some of those um, entities that we we talked about earlier. Uh, but I really want to thank you, Dr. Gandhi. Uh, it was a blast listening to you. Uh, I told <laughs> you, you, I told you, I was a fan. I'm, a, I'm I am a huge Dr. Gandhi fan. Uh, I if if I know you're coming on, like the local news, like I'll pause my my TV so I don't miss it. Uh, because i I, <laughs> I get excited when you because uh, we, we need we need we need more discussion like you've introduced and so yeah. uh i really appreciate you coming on um best of luck getting this this uh piece to uh, again those those higher ups that we have talked thinkers. about yeah yeah i hope so so well so much um, i really appreciate it it was nice to talk to you yeah likewise likewise
1: okay